0: Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Ready? Yep. Let's go. Let's laugh. We are imperfect after all. Okay. (laughs) Hello and welcome to the Imperfect Us Podcast. I'm Leanne Camilleri. And I'm Lisa Downs. As hosts of the Imperfect Us Podcast, we share relatable stories that celebrate we are all perfectly imperfect humans leading perfectly imperfect lives. We discover practical and evidence-based strategies that draw on the science of wellbeing and positive psychology that help us to uncover the barriers that might hold us back from being our authentic selves and turn them into opportunities so that we can show up more consistently doing what we really aspire to do and who we want to be.
1: We acknowledge the Wadawurrung and the Ghana people as traditional custodians of the beautiful lands on which this podcast is being recorded. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and extend this respect to other First Nations people who are here with us today. So, let's get started. Dr Lindsay Odes approaches life as an adventurer who believes that wellbeing is everybody's business. As Director of the Centre for Wellbeing Science at Melbourne University's Graduate School of Education, Lindsay oversees the Masters of Applied Positive Psychology program. Lindsay's formal training is in clinical psychology and business, and he has published over 100 journal articles and book chapters on these topics. He is the co-editor of the International Journal of Wellbeing, and a member of the Scientific Advisory Board at the Institute of Coaching at Harvard University. Welcome, Professor Lindsay Odes. Lindsay, we're so grateful to have you here with us today, and we'd love if you could share with us what led you to the work that you're doing.
2: Very happy to be here, and good opportunity to have a have a chat. What's led me to the work I'm doing? It's probably a long a long answer, a long journey. I, I think if I go right back, my mum was a very kind and emotional person. My father was kind too, but more, I think about him as an analytical, inquiring person. so, I think that the idea of what makes people feel good and kind and interested in emotions combined with analytical inquiring mind led me to the science of psychology in general. I probably should mention, I had some experiences of anxiety and depression too in my late adolescence, early pre-adult time, which also probably bolstered my interest and desire to make a contribution to mental health systems. But then it shifted from clinical psychology and I got a bit disenchanted with the individual nature of it. Well, not, not disenchanted, I just didn't think that that was going to be the solution to broader systems change. So I started thinking about systems more and more, but I also came disenchanted with some of the negative focus of, of some of the approaches. So I was looking for both systems approaches and more positive approaches. I was working in psychiatric rehabilitation and the unit got closed at the stroke of a pen and I thought, wow, what? how did that happen? Which got me interested in organisational work, which is why I did an MBA. And then I moved to a more of an educational context, partly because I was asked to and partly because I really believe in the leveraging aspect of education and how education can make Major changes to systems and uh, the population, so it's kind of kind of been an evolution. And I have a curiosity about me. I like to learn new things, so I get bored with this uh, discipline, and then I'll move to a new one. So kind of a mission to contribute to well-being. That's the way I talk about it now. But also a, a curiosity which has taken me across contexts and disciplines on my little personal intellectual adventure that I've been on. So there's a few things there. Just Love a snapshot. it. Snapshot.
0: You've been able to bring all of those fields almost together to continue that curiosity and how they link together. I think that's what I love about the work that you're doing too. But So now are you ready for this one, Lindsay? We've been having a bit of fun this season talking to our guests about imposter thoughts and how that can sometimes hinder some of our thinking and how it shows up in the world. And we're just wondering if you have a story where you've experienced some either imposter thoughts or self-doubt, and what did you learn about yourself at the time? I
2: yeah. think the what gets called the imposter syndrome that sort of idea it's quite common I must say I don't haven't really experienced it probably since adolescence I don't it's not something that I personally have been challenged by or wrestle with. It doesn't mean that I always feel confident in every environment, but the way the actual imposter part doesn't really capture my mental experience. But if you talk more broadly about thoughts that are intrusive or negative or junk thoughts that pop up, definitely have those. And I used to, again, when I was younger, they used to be troubling because you didn't, didn't have the ability to separate your sort of monkey mind thoughts that are going running all the time from what might be more reasonable or rational or just not having thoughts all popping up all the time. So I definitely have those, but both from just lived experience and also from training, you start to, and training, when I say training, I don't just mean psychology training, I also mean traditions from Buddhism and Hinduism and mindfulness meditations, the ability to observe one's thoughts, that's become a kind of habit for me. I'm probably better at the mindfulness I am at the loving kindness. The loving kindness is really helpful and beneficial, and I should do it, and do do it sometimes when I need to. The mindfulness part comes more easily, so that you know observing thoughts and noticing that the negative self talk is more. You know, when I'm tired, you expect it. It's like you know, it's like a a happy friend. You know, it's going to turn up. It's mm-hmm. just like, oh yeah, there's that stupid thinking again. Yeah, good on you. So I guess over time, developing a relationship with the thoughts noticing when they come up and why they come up and ignoring them or if they're recurring disputing them but those sorts of those sorts of skills so i don't do the imposter syndrome but i certainly do the like all of us the negative thoughts come up and sometimes intrude and also negative images they're not just not just cognitive thoughts like so cognition in, includes images and they pop up too
1: Mm. We like to be challenged on this poster syndrome because I'm not sure that we necessarily connect to the, the word as such. And I think that's because we're starting to see that we can turn these things around and see them differently and use them to propel us forward so so and i can see that you know from what you've explained from way back when you in your younger years you've obviously had that training and support to think differently as well which is which is beneficial when these sorts of things these sorts of thoughts arise yeah i think
2: totally the idea that we are not our thoughts or the fundamental idea that we can influence our thoughts it might be obvious to some of us but to a large part of the population that's not necessarily the case mm. they may not be aware that no, just because they thought something doesn't make it true that they aren't their actual thoughts and that they can influence their thoughts they're all skills and they're it, it's a, the firstly the knowledge that you can do it and then the skill on how to be able to do it it isn't necessarily everybody in the general population has that mm. and i think that's the fundamental starting mm. point to it
1: yeah yeah yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah it's so funny we totally agree with you Lindsay and I think what we've been doing is practicing a lot of this in our own spaces so I work with five and six year old children at the moment and we've been talking I've been using a bit of your well-being literacy which we'll talk about in just a minute but even talking about the language of mindfulness and what that is and then actually going through the process of You know, if we read a story, for example, about it and then they practice that and then they're talking again about it, it's quite interesting that they will tell you and I've heard them say it when someone's not coping very well and they're saying, well, why don't you do your big breathing again and see if your body can get calm again? So they're starting to use the language over and over because they're applying it into their life and it's just fantastic. And I've heard them talking about those thoughts. They're saying, I can't do that. And then the next friend is saying, we actually, yes, you can. You did it yesterday. Just do what you did yesterday. It's just so awesome.
1: One of the common threads that we are finding, Lindsay, in, in our conversations is that that link between self-awareness and the influence on mindset. And, and we're really curious to learn your insights into this area and how well being literacy might play a part in reframing um, our, our imposter thoughts or our self-doubt.
2: Okay, so yeah, just to sort of unpack that question a little, two, two immediate answers before I come to wellbeing literacy. So when we talk about self-awareness, and of course, Socrates talked about a good life is, you know, one that, where we've examined the self, etc. So the idea of self-awareness goes back many centuries, and probably well beyond Socrates as well. But if we look at our sort of contemporary ideas to put flesh on what self-awareness might be, there are other aspects of concepts like self-acceptance, self-compassion, self-esteem, self-love that are all relevant to that. And that's, that's important because we know the self-esteem movement as such is not, not fully being successful because it, it doesn't necessarily encompass the ideas of self-acceptance or self-compassion. And we're seeing, you know, quite big relationships between things like self-acceptance and well-being broadly defined. So that's a sort of preamble to it. And also the notion of, you know, the popular talk therapies in in Western society now, like cognitive behavior therapy. And of course, a lot of positive psychology was an extended version of rational emotive behavior therapy. So these ideas of how we can actually look at our own thoughts and be aware, be aware of our own cognition and our own mental landscape is, is becoming increasingly accepted and increasingly scientifically evidenced and also increasingly sophisticated because we're learning more about what works for who when so to come to the second part of your question with well-being literacy the link here is the notion of self-talk which has been around a long time in the scientific literature self-talk michael baum's work other work again particularly in the cognitive behavioral therapies, where that relates to well-being literacy, it doesn't relate directly, but one way you could think about the relationship with well-being literacy. So well-being literacy, how do we intentionally communicate about and for well-being, which can be reading, writing, speaking, listening, creating, viewing so it can be we can communicate in multiple modalities and, and in communication there's an expressor of, of the message and there's a receiver of the message so the language use is always in relationship the relationship here is self-talk so it's it's a relationship with self so how one talks to the self or how i talks to me i Mm -hmm. being the experiencing self the 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 actual the observing self and me being selfless object so when i'm talking about who i who i might be in the future or who i was in the past rather than the person, the eye that's actually doing the observing in the moment. Mm. So that relationship and the self-talk, so the language use and the the way, the way one's talking to oneself and doing it intentionally, we can actually think about that relationship in terms of imposter thoughts, those sorts of notions through a wellbeing literacy lens. uh, If you like, we haven't done a lot of work on it in that, in that regard, but it's certainly relevant and can be construed in that way which which makes it not that different than aspects in this context not that different than some aspects of cognitive cognitive behavioral therapy if if Mm -hmm. if you think about conscious cognition and language use as as a similar thing then there are some big big similarities Mm -hmm. there probably that's not been the primary purpose for the development of well-being literacy but uh, that doesn't mean it couldn't be construed or used in that in that way. Mm. This goes back to some of the previous things we were talking about about you know that skill of observing one's thoughts, so the Buddhist <laughs> mindfulness tradition and observing thoughts, acceptance and commitment therapy, all of these ideas about metacognition or being able to observe one's own mental states, getting above it, observing it, that sort of notion, which also goes with the, the ideas of equanimity in, in the Buddhist tradition and you know, non being a non-reactive mind because we're able to observe rather than react. That. Thinking about thoughts as a, you know, things on a leaf flowing down a river and then letting them go. They're the skills I was talking about before. Well-being literacy, component four of well-being literacy is... A, adaptation to context and component five notion of intentionality that is always looking at our own language use which so that it has a metacognitive component so mm-hmm. we're actually looking at how we're using language while we're doing it we're watching our p's and q's so to speak in the way that we're using language and in the context of this question we're watching how we're actually talking to ourselves mm-hmm. how we're communicating to ourselves, or how we're listening to ourselves, And that's where I see a, a link to some of the things about imposter thoughts mm-hmm. and wellbeing literacy.
1: And I guess the impact of our words, whether they're spoken or in our head can really impact how we show up, how we behave, etc. We've talked a lot in previous podcasts, interviews that around that cognitive behavior therapy, flipping the experience and drawing on that inner coach to help us to see things in a different perspective having an understanding having that well-being literacy i guess helps us to see things through a different lens
2: yeah and i think the other part one of the one of the underpinning aspects of well-being literacy and it's not all about vocabulary but let's start with that because that's easier to understand the more words you have, the more choices you have to describe your own experience. Mm. So you can get more fine-grained, more subtle. You've got more choices, and that's a, the emotional literacy part of it. So if we're putting language to our emotions, that's that's a well-known area, and that's 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 a good example. If we can, if we've got emotional differentiation in the way we can discriminate between our feelings and emotions, we are less likely to be reactive because we can articulate aspects. So that's part of a self-regulate regulation aspect of this this area but also vocabulary you know, vocab vocabulary of verbal labels to concepts so if we have more concepts again we have more choices so that's the you know it's not just the language but it's what the language signifies so mindfulness is a good example mindfulness is an untranslatable word we didn't have a word in english for mindfulness we kind of created it to to translate a, a different word and we still argue about whether it's a good translation mm-hmm. but by having that verbal tag and that verbal label we are then opened up to a whole different set of traditions and practices and if we know of them then we have more choices in what what what's possible so we actually have the liberty the freedom which is brought to us by a broader well-being vocabulary which we can then use to Describe our experiences and I haven't given it much thought, but I'm sure that could be applied to what you're referring to as imposter thoughts mm-hmm. and imposter is a, imposter thought is itself a metaphor. Most language is analogical. That is, it comes from analogies. It's something related to something else. Uh, anxiety was butterflies in the stomach. So language mm-hmm. was usually mapping our psychological experience onto the physical world. But you've got choices in what metaphors you use to describe your own experience and it doesn't mean you have to just flip everything to be positive when it's not far mm-hmm. from it it means that you can get finer grained better fitting metaphors and then you can also ask yourself are they helpful and is it useful is it helpful that's part of both the cognitive behavioral type traditions as well as is relevant and narrative therapy and is relevant to some of the aspects of well-being literacy. Yeah,
1: We can be quick to say to someone who's challenged in their thoughts, look for the positive, look for the positive, but not always is that helpful in, in a situation. We, you know, I can see things through rose-coloured glasses, like, you know, you know my strength's uh, being appreciation of excellence and beauty I, I do tend to look through those rose-colored glasses but I think the importance of understanding that it's not perfect or we want people to see the bright side sometimes we've got to be in that discomfort for a period of time but I, but I guess if we've got that understanding I guess that Literacy, I'm, I'm struggling to sort of put it into words. We draw on that understanding that the broader words, as you explain, we have more language to describe our experience, then I guess we're empowered to navigate.
2: Yeah, totally. So empowered is a key word. Uh, you have agency. You've got choices over how you are interpreting and narrating the experience. Uh, and mm. That's that's part of the key it so that's the sort of emancipatory aspect of it that is it can free you if you're doing it doing it well because you can create things and you can create and imagine new things through language and imagination takes us from some of the constraints of the immediate situation even if they're Mm -hmm. extremely negative uh there's a couple of other aspects to this, but I mean, we can probably keep talking about this forever. (laughs) um, I'm sure we don't have time, but I think there's the idea of the importance of language and it mediates a lot of our experiences. It's quite hard for us as adult folks to get lots of experiences without language being involved We can do that, but language is very pervasive. Therefore we need to think about it and it's part of culture culture is by definition learned so we can learn our way to well-being
0: Mm.
2: that's part of what well-being literacy is really tapping into and really getting at.
0: Mm. i have to say sort of like i've said a little bit i've been start only just starting really to dabble in this with the children that we're learning or that we're teaching here at our school i'm really amazed by the changes in their behaviors just because they're now starting to learn a little bit more about different words and what that means, but they're doing it collectively. So for an example, we have some little people who, you know, initially used to just think of happy, sad, mad, you know, that sort of language where now they're talking about. The words that are coming out is that I'm frustrated when you do this, this is happening. When you're doing that, that's actually hurting my feelings and I feel, you know, and they're explaining things with much more language and literacy than they've ever done before, but they're connecting it to a lot of the other work that we're doing either within, like I said before, mindfulness or if it's to do with our reading and, our you know, having courage to actually have a go, I might not get it yet, but there's just so much more rich vocabulary coming out of these little people, which is really great. Better and than I imagine, uh, and mad.
2: Is it coming out in their pictures as well and their drawings?
0: Oh, everything. Yeah. And their stories and even just the conversations they're having with each other. When it used to be stop it, I don't like it type of thing. Where now they're saying, Hey, when you just did that, that really hurt my arm. Can you not do that again? So their language is actually becoming, you know, richer. It's wonderful. Now Mr. Lindsay Oades, I'm going to ask you the next question. Are you ready? I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're going to flip a little bit. There's only a little bit. We're just wondering if you could explain. You have this amazing theory that you've developed. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what it is, this new theory, and also maybe what you're finding in your research at the moment.
2: Okay, so Thriveability Theory, as it's called. So Thriveability. And I'll just try and pick some of the highlights because it's, it's quite a large... Theory. So it is a it is a comprehensive theory of well-being, if you like, and it's designed to be interdisciplinary. So not only staying in the grounds of psychology, but other disciplines that have had quite a bit to say about well-being over the years. A starting point, I've said it's a theory about well-being, but it's actually a theory about flourishing, well-being, and thriving. So one of the key ways of understanding thrivability theory to start with. Firstly, thinking about flourishing, which derives from the word blossoming. Flourishing in this approach is defined as an optimal process of realizing one's potential. And that's in line with some of Aristotle's work and and realizing one's potential in an ethical sense. But if you think about a flower, which is blossoming, flourishing is always a state of becoming. It's always a state of movement. So a flower, sorry, a plant, Flowers and blossoms that seeds and reseeds, and then a new plant will will grow somewhere else or nearby, if it's pollinated, etc. So it's not a one-shot thing; it's an ongoing process of renewal. So that that organism. Is always in a state of becoming. That's the notion of flourishing, and that's important because some people think of flourishing as just high levels of well-being. And psychologists are particularly guilty of that because that's partly what's being promoted. A lot of traditions, and in this theory in particular, we, we're really discriminating it and saying that's that's flourishing. So think about flourishing as blossoming. Well-being derives originally from one of the words "gush." So we need to think about it as as a river or a gushing river or a wellspring. And this takes well-being to very much being an experience. It's a subjective experience. It's a state of being or a river of consciousness. So that's different than the process of realising one's potential. It's actually a different different thing. Thriving, and the reason the theory is called Thrivability Theory, because I think this is the biggest part of the contribution of what what discriminates this theory from some of the existing well-being theories. Thriving, de- thriving derives from the word thrifa, which means to take hold of one's environment. So flourishing was the blossoming flower, well-being is like the gushing river. Thriving is like the root, which is taking hold of the environment, or optimal taking hold of the environment in my theory. So that's different. So well-being is the being experience, flourishing is about the process of realising one's potential and thriving is about the actual taking hold of one's environment. Importantly, uh, so if you can't remember all that, just think about the flower, the river and the root, and then you will that will remind you back to the three different approaches. One of the things about uh, Thrivability Theory is it sees it doesn't view well-being exactly the same as a lot of people view it. It views well-being like some of the old philosophers like Sedgwick, um, they talk about the hedonic paradox. That is, you can't get to well-being. If you try and get to, if you try and have well-being, you spoil it. And that was the hedonic paradox. This is similar, however, by bringing in a systems approach, we view this views well-being as something which emerges from our interaction with the environment. It emerges from our taking hold of the environment. So in, in this sense, well-being is actually an emergent property like a systems approach from our interaction of our use of our abilities and skills with the environment. We don't get there directly It emerges from our interactions with the environment. So to say I'm just going to go and get well-being doesn't make sense in this particular theory because there's this thing called the environment that we're interacting with, which may or may not allow us to have this emergent well-being experience. And that's frustrating because there's a lot of books out there that can tell you you can get there in three simple steps, which I would argue are false or at least very naive because it, it is more complex than that. And so Thrivability Theory tries to acknowledge the complexity. The other thing the theory does is it sees the, these emergent well-being experiences coming in three types. And these are effectively the three Cs. So the experiences that emerge from our strivings, that is competency. So our experiences of competency, when we, when we interact with the environment, physical or social, and we feel competent, that is one type of our experience of well-being, and it's not. We're not saying that leads to well-being. This theory argues that is well-being. When you when you experience competency, that's one type of well-being. I'm not a predictor of well-being, not something which you'll get there in the future, but the actual experience of it is well-being, which is also a different approach than some of the theories. The second C is, and the one I'll put in the centre because I think it's got special qualities and that is connection we are social beings our experience of connections with others and our relationships in general including relationships with the world that is another emergent type of well-being so the, the why do we like socializing why do, why does it have joy with it because there's something about our experiences of that type of interaction it is well-being the third type is what I call experience of composure, which is so that's the third C. So we've had competency, connection and composure. And that very closely relates to previous aspects of our conversation about self-talk, self-regulation, self-acceptance, being able to observe one's own thoughts and be non-reactive. Hence the term composure, which is similar to the notion of equanimity and being non-reactive. So in simple terms, you could say, experience calmness but it's not just calmness it's mm-hmm. calmness under duress so how do we how do we feel calm and feel content even though there might be stre- stress or or impacting things and mm-hmm. i would argue and this theory argues that that's that's a type of well-being in its own right so we've got three types of well-being mm-hmm. experiences of competency experiences of connection and experiences of composure and they are well-being according to this theory. Yes, they might correlate with other types of well-being in the literature like life satisfaction and that, and that but this theory views them as well-being and they emerge from the interaction between our abilities, at, or our thrive abilities and aspects of the world. And the aspects of the world or the environment in this theory is viewed as called livability and it's in livability increases by removing seven hindrances. And they include poverty, ignorance, disease, violence, environmental degradation. That's, I'm not even sure if I'm up to seven, but seven things in the world that we would rather not be there. And if they weren't there, it's more likely that we would be able to have our experiences of wellbeing. They're less changeable. What is changeable? Things that we can do to educate people, to give them skills, so Mm. the theory has 12 meta skills of which well-being literacy is one that relate to helping us work you know helping us be more likely to be able to interact with our environments in a better way which will then lead to those three different types of well-being so one last thing i'll mention because as i said it's a big theory it's got multiple bits is a key aspect of the theory too, is what it does with emotions, rather than seeing positive and negative emotions or positive emotion as well being, it, it views it as a, an indicator on how well we're interacting with the environment. And it also has approach and avoidance motivations or impulses and our sense of pleasure and pain. So pleasure and pain or pleasure and positive emotions are often often seen as happiness, pain and negative emotions. That's the classic hedonic tradition in in this this literature, rather than getting into an argument about is it hedonic or eudaimonic, Thrivability Theory has both and but it views the emotions part and the pleasure and pain part. As what's called the survival dashboard. As the way we navigate through our environments on, on on our on our journey of striving, so to speak. But they're indicators. They're short-term indicators. They are not happiness or well-being. I mean, you could you could call them happiness, but this is not a theory of happiness. This is a, a, a comprehensive theory of thriving, well-being, and flourishing. Yep, happiness and emotions relevant, but it's only it's only relevant as it's an indicator. To, to our interactions with the environment and whether we should approach or avoid our immediate environment, which is brought to us by uh, many, many years of evolution. So what it does is it brings together uh, lots of parts of existing wellbeing science and traditions in political ph- philosophy, sociology, etc. but most importantly, The concept of thriving itself necessarily requires you to think about both the person and the environment and their interaction, Mm -hmm. a lot of psychological traditions can be quite individualistic and try and ignore the environment or see the environment as constant or a lot of sociology or economic traditions. Can ignore the differences that individuals have in themselves, which are the, the psychological differences. So it's trying to bring together both so that we have a, a finer grained and richer understanding of the many things, not only psychological, that can lead to our experiences of well being. I haven't listed the 12 meta skills, which I probably should have, but they are. They are the education and psychological bits. They're the bits where the practitioners go and teach people things that people can learn. And fundamentally, that part of it is an educational model. So it's not about removing mental illness as such. That's one of the hindrances. But there are many other things that impact on people's well-being. And the biggest impact that we can have individually is learning skills to Better interact with the environment, which I referred to as thrive abilities.
1: There's so Sorry. <laughs> there's, there's so much to unpack there. Like it is so big. And when I first learned about you know, your theory on thrivability, something that stuck with me was, you know, we all need to have well-being or understand how to have well-being in our lives, but mostly the people who have well-being those who are privileged who can pay for the support or have those resources there are a lot of people that need that support but can't necessarily find their way to it you talked about the competency connection and composure if I don't understand those skills then I'm missing something to be able to move forward aren't I
2: potentially I mean one of the one of the because it's a systems model, it's not saying that they're all, they're all necessary. Right. It's saying that the interactions between the environmental conditions, so the removal of things like poverty, ignorance, disease, violence, environmental degradation, those types of hindrances in the environment. And how do we do that? We have health systems, we have education systems, etc. They're part of our social institutions, part of our economics and public policy. They are part of it and they do predict They do predict well being, and that's why they're in there. But also, as individuals, we can learn and develop skills, and these things interact. So, you you can have a high, high ability person in a low livability environment, and they won't realize their full potential, which is the definition of flourishing. Mm. And that's what the theory is trying to do it's trying to look at the interactions between the personal skills and characteristics, personal abilities, and the environmental opportunities and explore them what systems theories do is they take all the parts and throw them all in together and see what emerges and that's exactly what the theory is it's does well-being emerge or how does well-being emerge for people when all these things are thrown in together some people have more skills than others some people have better environments than others thriving is the optimal taking hold of the environment but what if the environment's not worth taking hold of Mm-hmm. So I'm talking about social environments here too. Mm-hmm. What happens to well-being, And it isn't all psychological. However, if we think about agency or our ability to act on the world, that happens more often when the environmental conditions are right, not all up to the individual. So some aspects and some theories will say it's all up to the individual, it's all down to individual choice. And as certain traditions, some of the American culture will have you believe in full agency, some of the psychology, positive psychology traditions of say, yep, it's all about you. It's all up to your your choice. But the health evidence doesn't bear that out. Environmental factors, social determinants of health tells us that's not the case. And this is kind of social determinants of wellbeing. That's what the theory is trying to tap into and give us a broader common interactive language. Otherwise, the psychologists are off working in one area, sociologists and economists off working in another area. But where's the the complex system, which is looking at the ecology Mm. of well-being? So that's, that's what we're trying to do with this theory.
0: I'm really excited to learn more about this. I heard your talk that you, when you were presenting the Thrivability Theory, and I have to share this lovely moment, Lindsay. So when I went home after listening to all of that, I went home and asked my boys, I've got two amazing adult boys and my husband, and I said, if you had to take something away so that we were, the whole world was flourishing. And they came up, it was like they were having this like little spitfire fight about power like what some of those things that you were saying poverty this that that and that it was hilarious like and then they got so passionate in the end I had to say all right I'm going to cook dinner now because they were just going and going and going and they were debating whether their word was actually better than now that was hilarious the thrivability is going to make a huge impact on the field of well-being science I have no doubt Mm. really excited yeah Lindsay, if people wanted to find out more about wellbeing literacy and even the thrivability theory, where might they find out more information about yourself and also the wonderful work you're doing?
2: A couple of places, website lindsayodesoneword.com. There are some resources there. Also, if you look at the University of Melbourne website, if you just Google Centre for Wellbeing Science at the University of Melbourne, it will take you to our website there. And there are a lot of resources, not only of mine, but of our our research team that will be able to give you access to a lot of the types of material that we that I've been talking about etc
1: so, perfect yeah. awesome thank you and based on our conversation today Lindsay is there a book or an app or podcast or TED talk that you might recommend for listeners to explore today
2: I think if you look again on the lindsayoads.com, there's a couple of podcasts there. The one I did with Andrew Lee might be of interest to people. And there's a couple of videos there as well that may be of interest too.
0: Perfect. Awesome. Thanks so much. We've been inviting all our guests to share either a self-care strategy that you're enjoying at the moment. And I wonder if there's something that you could share with us about something you're doing that's a little bit more self-care for you.
2: Are you going to guess?
0: I was going to it was going to say something to do with mindfulness and I, I don't know what it is but something to do with mindfulness. Am I wrong?
2: <laughs> I wouldn't use those words. Am I right?
0: Okay. So,
2: <laughs> so consistent with the book I'm writing I'm so I'm currently writing the book called Don't Pursue Happiness which is a
0: Lovely.
2: book about the thrivability theory which I've just been talking about. And because I talk about systems and context so much, I generally don't like tips and tricks because I want people to develop their own, to take their own environment and their own system into account. Probably the other comment I would make is, given that altruism and relationships are both strong predictors of well-being, I'd probably prefer terms like other care and other help rather than self-care and self-help. But once again, I might not sell any books or day spas or things like that (laughs) by by doing that. But so one thing to actually, uh, with all those caveats, I will actually give you something. And that one thing I do try to do, sometimes well, sometimes I'm not disciplined enough, is when you're feeling low or your boss, boss doesn't value you or your partner's not valuing you enough or you've been slighted or something's gone wrong, you're in a funk, you're grumpy or sad, whatever, Try and sort of go and voluntarily and almost unexpectedly for another person, someone who's less fortunate than you or less able. So the less able might have, when I say less able, just maybe a child, they might not just, they don't have as many resources as you just go and do it for them, go and do something unexpectedly and voluntarily for them right at the time when you feel least likely that, you know, that you could and see what happens. So I try and do that. I try and switch right around really quickly. You might call it self-care, but it's really sort of changing the whole tone of self-indulgence and then actually getting a net benefit because you feel better and they feel better and your relationships uh, improved. So that's something I try to do. I don't always manage it, but at least I aim for it.
0: I have to have a giggle with that. When you were saying, I was smiling my head off because I actually did something to a friend of mine just recently and I made her cry. <laughs> I felt terrible. But then she came straight back and she said, I was only crying my happy tears. And she said, but you filled my bucket. And because she came back at me that way, I felt amazing. So it is a wonderful thing with others. Thank you so much, Lindsay. I know we
2: have to end, but just to, I'm curious as to what ideas have stood out for you today.
0: Oh God, there's so many. For me, I'm loving your wellbeing literacy. And I think the big parts about that is wellbeing literacy has been standing out for me because a lot of people talk about in education. So I'm in the field of education, obviously, and they talk about wellbeing or literacy being one component. And so what's standing out for me is that the wellbeing literacy and your thrivability theory for me keeps connecting the self to the we, to the us. And I really like that you've changed the lens with the environment, that we're connected with the environment and that our environment can have an impact on our wellbeing. And that's something that I think people forget. That's for me though. I'm taking with me
1: the, the three Cs. I think, mm-hmm. you know, as you were talking that through, I was relating to that in the perspective of the conversations that we've had up until now, link our conversation back to like self-doubt, imposter syndrome, et cetera. I can see how these three components really impact how we can sort of view our experience change our experience and even.
0: Well-being. hey Lindsay yeah. can I have another go I've had another think
1: you
2: can do what you like
0: <laughs> Instead of just rambling like I did before I tell you what I really loved when you were explaining the Thrivability Theory I was thinking about just those visuals of the blossom the leaf with the river and the roots and to me that's going to stand out for me to want to find out a little bit more about each of those so they are locked in for me and i, I really love that one
1: mm. yeah yeah thank you so much we've really appreciated the time with you today
2: great thank you both for your time and i also hope the listeners found it useful in some way oh
0: i'm sure they will and i know that it'll be something that we'll be talking about for a little bit longer which is yeah. great oh how amazing is that man yeah. I love Lindsay
1: yeah fantastic and you know i just got so much from that conversation and once we started talking about thrivability theory i have a full page here of you know just all sorts of things that just really resonated with me for all sorts of reasons loved how he challenged us at the end
0: oh yeah great it was a bit hard and we and lindsay if you're listening to this now listen (laughs) not late at night (laughs) but do you know what and I know that I just spoke first quickly but I really resonated when he was talking about you know the visuals of the blossom Mm. and that if we could imagine what that is like that well-being is not just something you're reaching towards a goal and that you get there it's an ongoing thing so like the plant is that it grows from the seed it grows into a little seedling it then has the flower, it then drops its seed, and it then just continues. So it's an ongoing process. I, I really love that, and it's about how we're becoming. So, yes, as you're going through you know, childhood almost or you're going through an event, a traumatic event or whatever it might be, you're going through that, and then you might see that rainbow, for example. The seeds are dropping, you're evolving, you're emerging, and you're becoming, and I love that. Mm. And he talked about that leaf. It's like having a leaf that gets put onto the river, just to let go of some of those things that are there I really love that and then the roots which were i think actually the the gush the gushing was the the river mm. but also that the roots is that like knowing that hold. connecting into the earth and the environment and what that's like i just i mm. really love that i think that's going to stick with me for a long time that mm. the term well-being as we knew it a long time ago has evolved so much with the science and the research in that but also that you know as he's talking about that thrivability, he's connecting and integrating other disciplines so it's not just psychology or positive psychology there's soci- sociology there's probably economics politics there's a whole lot of things and what does well-being actually really mean for us and the world i love that
1: there was so much to consider he used a term a survival dashboard yeah. I really liked that. I really connected to that when he said that. and It was and more about
0: the emotions, wasn't it?
1: Yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, as we went along in our conversation, I found myself thinking, wow, this is so much bigger. It's not simple, is it? It's complex.
0: Because we are, as humans, we're becoming. Yes. And we're always becoming. So as we go along, we, you know, we think, oh, where are we? You know, happiness, like they used to sort of say, you know, do we get towards happiness or do we get towards well being? When do we get to have good well being? Well, actually, we're always evolving and emerging. It's okay. That's I what love part of human is, being a human is.
1: Absolutely. And I love that I'm left thinking frustrating in a good way (laughs) because you know do I need to rethink things do I need to see things a bit differently do I need to have more resources around me you know all this sort of thing has my mind thinking about you know all of this and and, you know what people might need for them to move forward
0: Mm but also that importance of the connection with others, you know, our world is about others. And, you know, if we're going to be connecting with the environment too, then, you know, that's such an important thing to talk about as well and we're not talking about just you know nature itself but what environment are we in is that actually hindering us helping us and or are we actually hindering it or helping it and what we need to be so well-being is not just you know one thing mm. you know functioning well and doing good and well, doing good is actually all those are important but, Mm. It's the way that he's defining it in Thriveability Theory that's helping mm. us to know that wellbeing is actually broader than that, But mm. we have some things that we can do. So as we're becoming, we're learning more and more about who we are, and who we are in the world, not mm. just an individual. But, yeah, absolutely. But <sighs> love it. Oh, well, love it too. Another beauty and what an, an awesome human, Professor Lindsay Ode's amazing man.
1: Fantastic. And thank you for listening to the Imperfect Us podcast. As always, we are extremely grateful to our executive producer, Brenton Ainsworth, for helping us to put this episode together. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please share it with someone you care about and we would be grateful if you could rate this podcast on iTunes. To continue the conversation and see what we're up to, you can connect with us on LinkedIn. Just search for Imperfect Us. Bye for now.